25 minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday, Erev Shabbos. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program.
J.M. in the A.M. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos, on this uh, July the 6th, day 23 in the month of Tammuz, the year 5778. Tavshin Ayin Ches. That was the uh, Yassi Rosenberg Yom Shlishi Medley. You heard Yom Zemachuba done by the Friedman family and Baruch Kel Elyon done by the Friedman family, both off the CD entitled My Zadie's Mirrors. Schlockrock with I Got My Shabbos off Schlockapella and, of course, Regesh and Modani opening things up. And we say good morning. It's Erev Shabbos Parsha's Pinchas with candle lighting time at 8.09 on this Erev Shabbos. 8.09 here in New York. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. We'll also bench Rosh Chodesh tomorrow. Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av will be on Friday, a one-day Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. On Friday, 78 degrees outside. Looks like thunderstorms for the bulk of the day here in New York with a high temperature of 84. Then tonight, partly cloudy and a low of 64. Tomorrow, sunshine, a high shot is 79 degrees. Ooh, that sounds pretty good. Yerushalayim is at 85 up in Guilford, New York. Our friends at Camp Masora are enjoying a 72-degree weather. We're at 78 as we wake up on a Friday here. At JM in the AM, 19 minutes before 7 o'clock. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget our weekly update is coming up next hour. Rabbi Yudin's going to be calling in from Israel, which is pretty cool. He'll give us a Dvar Torah, a weekly portion uh, discussion about Parshas Pinchas from the Holy Land, which is always nice. And uh, plenty more happening if you keep it here at JM in the AM between now and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. I thank you so much for tuning in. We've got more coming up. I just want to check if we have any uh, anything from our app that we want to share with everybody. If you want to comment on the app, go to the NSN, Nahum Seal Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away. Friday morning, it's JM in the AM. <laughs> Yona, Yona Matza, Yona Matza, Vomanoach, Vesham Yanuchu, Yanuchu, Yigi Echoach, Yigi Yeah, <laughs> 
Oh, <laughs> 
J.M. in the A.M. Friday morning on this Erev Shabbos Parsha's Pinchas candle lighting at 8.09 in New York. You heard Yismachu, that was done by the Yeshiva Boys Choir. Before that, Nachum Stark's Zachor. Yom Zed done by Bitachon. Kol Zimra had Yom Shabboson. It is a Friday. Next Friday is a Rosh Chodesh Av. We'll bench Rosh Chodesh tomorrow. Rosh Chodesh Av is one day. Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av is Friday of next week. Thunderstorms today with a high of 84 here in the New York area. It looks like a really nice-looking Shabbos, Baruch Hashem, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com on the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, in the beloved NSN app. Galei Tzal in the background. We'll do our news from Israel coming up and then uh, get into the 7 o'clock hour. Malcolm Holmline will join us. He's Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He's slated to join us about 7.40 this morning here at JMN. Rabbi Yudin's going to be calling in from Israel. Rabbi Yudin's going to be calling in from Israel. He'll join us to discuss uh, Parshas Pinchas from the Holy Land. How do you like that? That'll be coming up here at JMN. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday is next. We say Boker Tov from JMN. Galitzal, תייר ישראלי נהרג בתאונת אומגה בהונדורס, כתבתנו מאיה רחלין. מלבד ההרוג בן ה-29, נפצע באורח קשה צעירה בת 28. ממשרד החוץ הישראלי נמסר כי הם מסייעים בהעברת גופתו של הצעיר לקבורה בישראל. הידרדרות משמעותית במצב האחות שנתקרה בתחילת השבוע בבית החולים שמואל הרופא, מעדכנת כתבתנו פי גוטמן. האחות רחלי ברוך נדקרה ביום שני על ידי מטופל שככל הנראה לוקה בנפשו. תחילה הוגדר מצבה בינוני, אך היא עברה אמש ניתוח מורכב, והועברה למחלקה לטיפול נמרץ במצב קשה. החשוד בדקירה הובא במהלך השבוע לבית המשפט, ומעצרו הוארך בחמישה ימים. כביש 4 חסום לתנועה ממחלף מורשה לרעננה צפון בשני הכיוונים בעקבות שרפת חורש. כתבתנו הדס שטייף מוסרת כי שוטרים נמצאים במקום ומכווינים את התנועה. בגלגלצ ממליצים לנהגים לנסוע דרך כביש 40. 
למעלה מ-2,500 ישראלים הגיעו עד כה להשתתף באירוע מסדר הדר להשבת החיילים והאזרחים השבויים ברצועה. המשתתפים מפריחים עפיפונים עם דגלי ישראל באירוע שמתקיים זה השבוע העשירי מול עזה. הנה דברים שאמר לגלי צה"ל אחיו של סגן הדר גולדין, צור. אלפי אזרחים פה כאן איתנו מול העיר עזה בדרישה אחת הומניטרית, תמורת הומניטרי. לא ייתכן שיהיה הסדר קבע לעזה מבלי שהנעדרים והשבויים, החיילים והאזרחים שלנו כאן בחזרה בישראל. אות הפתיחה למלחמות הסחר, סין הודיעה כי מכסיה על סחורות אמריקניות נכנסו לתוקף שעות לאחר הכרזה דומה של ממשל טראמפ, מדווחת יערה אגמי חורי. לפי דיווח בסוכנות הידיעות הסינית, ממשלת סין תטיל מכס על סחורות אמריקניות בגובה 34 מיליארד דולר, סכום זהה למכסים האמריקניים שנכנסו שעות ספורות לפני כן לתוקפם. שר המסחר של סין האשים מוקדם יותר את וושינגטון בפתיחת מלחמת הסחר הגדולה ביותר בהיסטוריה, כך לדבריו. ועם אות הפתיחה הקרב של משחקי רבע הגמר בגביע העולם בכדורגל, כתבנו אופיר יונתן. בעוד כשלוש שעות יחל שלב רבע הגמר במשחק בין צרפת לאורוגוואי. טרם ידוע אם חלוץ הנבחרת הדרום-אמריקנית קוואני ישחק לאחר שנפצע בשלב השמינית. בשעה תשע יחל המשחק המרכזי בשלב רבע הגמר בין ברזיל מארחת גביע העולם הקודם לבלגיה. תחזית מזג האוויר, היום חם מהרגיל לעונה בעיקר בהרים ובפנים הארץ. לא צפוי שינוי ניכר לפחות עד יום שני. אלה החדשות בצוות גלי יוזביץ' ואילי קונפלד.
Shalom Bechelech, Shalva
JM in the AM. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos, candlelighting at 8.09 here in New York. And uh, we've got the weekly update coming up. That's right. The weekly update's going to be coming up here at JM in the AM. Malcolm Holmline's going to join us. We'll talk about the events of this week. Go through the news items that are uh, of interest to our community. It's all coming up. Keep it right here at JM in the AM.
light of ancient hope. Don't try to explain her incomparable beauty. Hold back the tears when you touch her wall. This is where Shlomo created the temple of God. His nexus of song and of prayer endures on and on. The cradle of peace. King Solomon's throne fills me with love. From the western wall to Harat's own theme, from Rechavia to Me'asha'arim, she's all of our hopes and she's all of our dreams. Yerushalayim, like blossoming flowers. On desolate branches, imbued with the spirit of things divine, with shops and schools and places of worship, the tree of life has been revived. This is where prophecy told of an end to our tears. What a wonderful thing to come home after two thousand years. Why? so hard to see. Why can't the rest of the world understand what she means? She's all of our hopes and she's all of our dreams. Yerushalayim. Yibeshkachech Yerushalayim. Why can't the rest of the world understand what she means? She's all of our hopes and she's all of our dreams. Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim. Three thousand years young. Yerushalayim. Home to us all. King Solomon's throne fills me with love. The cradle of peace. J.M. in the A.M., that's uh, Yerushalayim, done by Bitachon. Before that, Mimkomcha and Vahoyu. Those were uh, Eli Gerstner and the Chevra here at the J.M. in the A.M. Good morning, all. Thanks for tuning in on a Friday on this July 6th, the 23rd of Tammuz. Erev Shabbos Parshas Pinchas and candlelighting in New York is 8.09. We welcome those of you from around the world who are tuned in. 
listening in, want to make sure to be part of our broadcast. It's uh, much appreciated, to say the least. Much appreciated. More coming up from Ellie Gerstner and the Chevra. Malcolm Holmline, 10 minutes from now with a weekly update. You're listening to JM in the AM.
From Ellie Gerstner and the Chevra. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Malcolm Honline in a moment. I want to thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com. Check them out. Thousands of articles that you can print out before Shabbos. A long Shabbos. And be informed about so many things happening in this amazing world of ours. Also, a big thank you to our friends at OnlySimchas.com. OnlySimchas.com continues to feature a whole bunch of amazing news stories from around the world. And they include bunch of stuff that goes on here on a regular basis and that is much appreciated check them out every day you'll enjoy their news feed only again that's only uh weekly update every week during the month of july except for uh, erev shabbos nachem that'll be the only time that uh, will be off otherwise uh, tell your friends tell your relatives tell your business associates tell all your colleagues tell those who want to be up uh, up to date on the things that we discuss here on this show 
uh, let them know that uh, we are here throughout the month of July, except again, uh, the final Friday of July, which is Erev Shabbos Nachamu. Malcolm Honline is, oh, and by the way, um, Rabbi Yudin will be speaking to us from Israel today, which is always extra special. Rabbi Yudin will be addressing us from Israel regarding Parshas Pinchas. It's always extra special. Uh, Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning to you and everyone. Um, I mean, what goes through your mind when you hear that Israeli technology was one of the main ingredients in finding the, uh, the Thai soccer team that's now still trapped in those tunnels below the surface of the earth? Yeah, I think it's really one of the horrific stories uh, I think what these kids have been through, but thank God they were found, and hopefully they can be brought out quickly. And the fact that Israeli technology was enlisted uh, is always rewarding and uh, encouraging, but not surprising. When you look at what is happening around the world and how many times Israeli technology has been enlisted or Israeli services have been enlisted in every you know tragic event, whether it's in... Uh, in South America during the recent volcano, or in, in Honduras and in, in Haiti and in Nepal and, and um, Kenya, there were uh, Israel's uh, expertise, technology, personnel were available and made available as they are today in Syria, where medical personnel are treating thousands of Syrians who are moving towards the Israeli border. Um, as they escape the fighting in southern Syria, uh, near the Israeli border and Jordanian border, but also moving with them are some of the militia and some of the other groups, as well as the Syrian army, which is encroaching more and more on the Golan. Uh, but the the story, this heroic story of what Sheba Hospital others are doing, uh, the hospitals in the north, Rambam, uh, as well, is is truly remarkable, and yet. It gets very short shrift because when Israel does these miraculous things, uh, it doesn't get the notice. The World Health Organization, which condemns Israel on the issue of women, while it's light years ahead of virtually everybody else in the World Health Organization, uh, hasn't found a commendation that they can uh, give or even verbal to Israel for its uh, amazing role in all of these crises. And we should note that there have been countries leaders of certain countries that have rejected Israeli help. I mean, again, when it comes to Israeli technology, I don't know if they'd be sophisticated enough to realize that, you know, if they would reject all of Israeli technology, most of these societies wouldn't be able to exist, frankly, at this point, as we know. Uh, But there have been uh, offers of help during different situations that have been rejected by certain countries when Israel has gone ahead and made the offer. And everything you said about the uh, hospitals, which you you do thank God on a regular basis, as you said, it gets so little attention from those around the world. It's, it's also interesting to watch how Israeli citizens, whether it's through toy collections, money, uh, whatever it is, are, are trying to assist these refugees and those who've been injured in Syria, especially the children. So it doesn't, it's not even, it's not just the medical community. It's amazing how it's spread out to what seems to be, you know, all Israelis at this point. It, it is true. And the, the people have responded generously and if you think about it, you know, Israel's a small country. Yep. They've got tremendous financial burdens as well. Yep. Uh, and yet the people, I, I remember being in Sderot once, and the, while they were under fire, constant fire, and all they kept asking me is, how are the people in the north doing? Can we send them stuff? Can, giving me baskets of fruit that 
we should take up to them when we were going up later in the day. And here are people who are literally living under siege for months and months, and all their concern was for others. Unbelievable. It's just incredible. A lot to be proud of, that's for sure. Uh, all right, a couple of stories this week that I, I've got to ask you about. First of all, this, this Ellie Cohen wristwatch uh, story. I mean, somehow after all these years, he was executed by the Syrians in the mid-1960s. Somehow the Israeli spies wristwatch got out of, I assume, Syria. Could you tell us any background on this? Uh, well, you can see the, uh, um, the watch online now. Uh, and it was a special operation by the Mossad that uh, got his wristwatch out. As you know, there have been many attempts and a great deal of attention to trying to get the body returned, although the Syrians claim that they, uh, it's in a hidden location or special uh, places that they didn't know. The, the watch was not with him. Uh, you ah, remember he was an Egyptian-born Jew who worked as an undercover agent in Egypt and Syria and right. was hung, I think, in 1964, 65. Right. And uh, I met with Mrs. Cohen uh, many times. She's she's in Israel, and I did speak to Assad about it and to others um, over the years. We're trying to 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 get his his returns, but we know that it was a that was a long shot. But. This was, um, you know, it's it's a message. You know, everybody can say, well, so what is a wristwatch? It's symbolism, and it's uh, a reminder of um, of what the heroic work that he did and how many others are doing to protect the people of Israel and why everybody compliments them on their intelligence but don't think of the sacrifices and go to the lobby of, um, of the Mossad Hall or the Shinbet Halls or the others and see the number of people who lost their lives in the line of duty. Yeah, and for those of you who are too young to remember, Google Ellie Cohen, start reading about it, watch the movie. There's been plenty that's been written about him, and of course... Several books. And several books as well, and of course, uh, major motion pictures, and you'll see the type of sacrifice. And his wife never, ever uh, lets anyone forget the type of sacrifice he made uh, for the Jewish people. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, some of the key information helped in the 1967 Six-Day War as well, which is probably the most high-profile aspect of his being a spy, right? Absolutely. Uh, an Israeli has been selected to lead the United Nations Human Rights Body. Professor Yuval Shani, the first Israeli to head the Human Rights Committee. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I would think that the UN would somehow figure out a way to keep Israelis off of the Human Rights Committee. This is not the Human Rights Council. This is a separate body. Uh, people think that uh, this is the body, that um, the, the major body. This is a commission that looks at the implementation of laws. He has been a member of the committee for a while and was selected as its chairman by the committee itself. It's not a UN General Assembly vote or Security Council vote. Symbolically, it's important, and the fact that the Israelis are in a few key positions in, in the United Nations, very few, but uh, nonetheless are, that is uh, that is important, but it's the, his personal qualities, I guess, and the expertise that uh, he's a professor of law, so that um, uh, enabled him to get selected. The the fact is also that this week we saw at the Human Rights Council when the Article Seven, the article that focuses on Israel, was brought up. Many of the European countries boycotted the session, and I think this has a lot to do with the U.S. leadership uh, and the. U.S. criticism withdrawal from the Human Rights Council, as they threatened that the um, 
uh, people are, are, are acknowledging the bias in the UN, even if they're not willing to act against it. Hmm. Interesting. Speaking of the UN, by the way, I'm sure you saw this Wall Street Journal article, Richard Goldberg and Jonathan Shanzer. The claim, of course, is that there are 5 million Palestinian refugees um, starting with the 1948 war, uh, around that time of Israel's independence. And uh, apparently there was a report in 2015 that was suppressed by the President of the United States at the time, Barack Obama, which would have proven or exposed that the refugee number is much, much, much less. What do we know about this? Well, it's a subject that's been debated because the numbers are inflated constantly and consistently. <clears throat> no one ever died in the camps because the standard of living in the camps was higher than in most of the surrounding Arab the areas in the in the Arab states. And so people would pass on their uh, identification cards from anybody who died to someone else. So the population kept growing, and we see it being magnified that they talk about 9 million, not just 5 million, 9 million refugees. Uh, Abbas has used uh, numbers like this and, right. uh, over the years. And the, the, the obvious purpose, you know, when you magnify the numbers, you can make greater demands on, quote, right of return, which is not a right, and there's no return. And the... Um, uh, you know, it's part of the the new narrative. Uh, people can invent narratives when they to make a point and to to establish their case. Here you have um, them. The the Palestinians have consistently uh, escalated the numbers, augmented the numbers. Uh, but the fact is that the core group, and this study supposedly shows that it is far less. And and, and other studies have even had lower numbers of the of the actual people. Yeah, they write and that. at one point, the, the question is, what point do they stop being refugees? When do right. they stay refugees for the next 30 generations? Well, because they refuse to, the Arab states refuse to integrate them, as Israel did the larger number of Jews who escaped Arab persecution in Arab states in the region and came to Israel to be, to be adopted and absorbed. Uh, and not kept in camps. Yeah, they estimate that there could be as many as 30,000 who remain alive today, and the reason that the um, the numbers are so large is that in some cases, great-great-grandchildren are listed as refugees who insist on the quote-unquote right of return. Here it says that in April, more than 50 House members urged uh, the, the um, State Department to declassify the report. Florida Senator Marco Rubio has done the same. 2012, I think that was. This is 2012, oh. No, in 2012, the Congress uh, gave an order to the State Department uh, about this to, to disclose how many Palestinians uh, were served by UNRWA, how many uh, that fled in 1948, etc. So the, there has been consistent congressional action and pressure to try and get uh, real numbers. And then in April of this year, right, uh, some 50 members, I think, of the House Correct. Uh, alone. Uh, wanted to declassify the the report. So, the, I mean, my simple question is, you know, we we know what the president of the United States has done vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel, you know, during the first part of his term. Why wouldn't he just go ahead and reverse the policy? They may not know about it. You know, it's it's still an administration that's finding its feet in many areas, and I don't think it's a policy decision not to release this uh, information. That uh, they obviously, I guess, in the previous administration, were concerned about what the backlash would be and that it would ignite um, tensions and further debates, and that they think that this is a way to cut the benefits that these people are receiving, when in fact an argument could be made that uh, it's time that they be freed from the shackles of this and go out and make their living. You know that in countries like Lebanon, they can't work. 
they can't take professional positions. I mean, and many areas of employment are proscribed from them. But Unbelievable. Then again, nobody knows. And also in the Syrian war, you know, you see the, the criticisms being leveled, but nobody talks about the, the Palestinians who have been killed in the, in the Armour camp and uh, that thousands were, were displaced already. And, uh, and that issue doesn't get any attention. Uh, the Iran spy trial against former energy minister Gonan Segev has already begun? Yes. You know, in this, you know, in this country, it takes months after the indictment to set up a yeah, trial. Yeah, there's no, there's no question about. I mean, they have hard and fast information. That doesn't mean that the trial will be fast. I think it's been uh, now suspended for for a while. But the, um, you know, the charges against him are, are, are very clear, and he, he is denying, obviously, that the, the charges that he spied. But the, they supposedly gave information to the Iranians. I don't know that the quality of that information is is so threatened to Israel. Having having trouble having trouble hearing you. Are you you there? Yes, sir. Oh, there you go. Segev yes. is suspected of providing his Iranian handlers with intelligence related to, among other things, Israel's energy industry, security sites, buildings, and officials in Israeli political and security bodies. And and as you said. In in those categories, obviously there could be some very serious things that went on, but it seems in his case it's very it's it's likely you'd say or very likely that not very serious things went on. The what I've heard we don't know exactly, but he did supposedly give names of people involved in the defense and security areas, but uh, that didn't have say nuclear secrets or. Other- We're having a lot of trouble hearing you. You keep breaking up on your phone. Um, you're there, right? Okay, we'll, we'll we'll keep trying here. Uh, Malcolm Holmline was with us, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved, NF, uh, NSN, uh, beloved NSN app. Speaking of trials that are starting quickly, again, not used to it <laughs> when you live in the U.S., apparently Sarah Netanyahu actually goes to trial you know, toward the end of July. That's what they're saying, and whether they reach a deal or they have to really go through with the trial, because she was offered a deal earlier, uh, it looks like uh, she'll go to trial. Boy, that should be interesting. I saw that. I saw. That, I saw her. Her husband. She thinks that too. Her her husband came out with an impassioned plea about. Uh, he almost, by the way, he almost, you know, um, uh took a page out of Donald Trump's book with fake news. He almost, almost went ahead and called the media fake news. It was a little bit of a different description. It was more like the, uh, you know, unending war that the media has had for 20 years against her and the way that they portray her. So tremendous resentment. You, you thought our president hates the media. Uh, the prime minister of Israel is not enjoying um, the way they're treating his wife, that's for sure. And him. And him is right. Did you um, see that Marwan Barghouti is up in the polls in terms of who might replace Mahmoud Abbas? There's a more and more speculation about uh, succession, even though I don't think that there's any uh, single person. And because we have to remember that these, each of these leaders have their own backers, including militias, that they have areas in which they are dominant. He is, of course, in an Israeli prison serving five life terms. And uh, there's no indication that Israel would let him out. Uh, and I think if they considered it, the, the backlash would be huge, and uh, maybe even toppling a government in, as a result. So uh, the the um, contentiousness is is 
uh, ever increasing within the PA itself, the instability of the PA. We know that the uh, you know the, the they're talking about possibilities again of uh, reconciliation, and but till now Abbas is blocking any such effort. He, he doesn't want to see the rehabilitation of Gaza, anything that would strengthen Hamas. Others say also we shouldn't show that we reward Hamas after what they're doing. You know the fires, the and people should know the scores of fires that were set just in this last week, 21 on one day alone. Uh, that every day of the week there are more and more. Again, something the the press doesn't uh, deem necessary to report on, and try to play down the idea of the kites and the balloons when in fact they are causing uh, a lot of damage and a lot of harassment. Um, homes have been burnt, uh, certainly crops and fields, and it is uh, an ongoing uh, danger. You know, landed on a child, it could also be very threatening. So the um, the PA itself is now under increasing pressure because of the new Taylor Force Equivalent Act in Israel, which would cut the, the transfer of funds, tax funds that Israel collects on behalf of the Palestinians, equivalent to the amount that they spend on uh, the terrorists, which is now estimated that in the past year, 365 million or 50, 356 million dollars uh, that they have an infrastructure of 550 people uh, working on it. And after um, I have to say, somewhat of a struggle, the law in Israel was passed, and this would um, deduct this this uh, money from the uh, payments that are are transferred. You know, and it's interesting to note if they're spending 350 or 60 million dollars on this, and yet they only spend 210 million dollars for the welfare for 120,000 needy families, it tells you what their what their priorities are. Uh, Abbas is clearly not prepared at this point even to talk to the Americans, which is outrageous, and to uh, to discuss what the content is, and they're not going to show him uh, the plan beforehand. He's going to be uh, skeptical and and raise all sorts of um, of the usual charges that they that they engage in, but the economic pressures on him will grow. The internal dissension then grows. The uh, the, the expectation that a peace plan could be forthcoming, uh, I think, with low expectations about its likelihood of success, but the the um, the PA is already initiated a campaign against the U.S. plan, having demonstrations, etc. Some say it's a, it's their answer to the march of return that Hamas organized and the demonstrations rallying people behind their flag so that the PA will use this to, to rally. But in most cases, it's a diversion from the problems and the realities that uh, of, of what people face. I can't get over the figure you just said, over $300 million. I thought it was... Uh... <laughs> I, I never thought it was that large, and um, and now I understand why it's so significant when uh, when Israel holds that money back. Three hundred thirty-six thousand family members, I think, get payments, and uh, in, got payments in twenty seventeen. Wow! So yes, it's it's always it's been a large amount of money, and you know this this is the, even some European countries, Australia joined. In cutting its funding, which wasn't that large, but significant statement, Julie Bishop said that the foreign minister uh, that they would not continue to to uh, fund this. Uh, more important that as other countries, other than just the United States and Israel, uh, join 
in sending a very strong message that this will not be tolerated. In Australia's case, they just cut all aid. It's all it's all gone. The the aid to to this now they they say they're going to give the money to a UN agency, which spends money not under another one that spends money in, on projects in. Uh, in the Palestinian Authority, and areas. they and, and in their public statement, they said it was because of pay for slay, because of sure. this. Wow, unbelievable! So there's some. But she has been very strong, uh, and uh, as opposed to Austria, which we see is playing a very weak role and leading some of the uh, counter U.S. efforts on Iran. Australia uh, has been in the forefront of uh, often of supporting the U.S. and Israel and the UN and other issues. Has Israel, in fact, stopped some large-scale terror attacks aimed at Europe? Uh, there are reports that Israel contributed to stopping the a terrorist attack in or in Israeli intelligence. Maybe other things uh, was instrumental. I don't know. And nobody has uh, come out to, to say it. The prime minister hinted at it. Right. But what we saw is several uh, uh, things exposed in the last days indicating that Iran, while the Europeans are courting them and doing everything possible... <laughs> Literally to, meeting with their president. Uh, well, in, in, he was in Austria this week, right? right? And others met with him, and the, uh, he was in Germany. That, uh, who, and he is, of course, not a moderate, as they try to portray him. And we know it from the statements he made, including saying that oh, during his European trip, he threatened the United States, he threatened Israel... Um, and uh, got applause from the Iran Revolutionary Guard at home for his uh, uh, radical statements, extreme statements. But here he is coming to Europe. They're going to meet. There's a meeting in Vienna of the foreign minister of China, Russia, France, Germany, UK, and obviously Austria. And they they're telling us that they're not going to implement uh, the, the United States sanctions. That they're uh, going to uh, continue to implement the JCPOA, even though all the signs in Europe, and this is really important and why every week I've tried to highlight some of the companies that have pulled out as a result of the U.S. sanctions, starting with Total. And I think that really popped the cork uh, on the outflow of major corporations. Car imports to to uh, Iran are coming to nil when Peugeot and Renault and all these countries pu companies pulled out when uh, major refineries around the world. When even Chinese and Indian companies say they wouldn't do business, when the um, uh, shipping companies stop, and when the banks won't give, won't insure, and the insurance companies don't insure, uh, and banks don't finance, it, it makes it impossible to do business. And we know that this, the impact of this, is being felt as the real continues to fall. The Iranian currency, the they continue to see the internal demonstrations, which go on. It's they have not stopped. And they are against Iranian involvement with Hezbollah, with Hamas. They even had death to Palestine on some of the signs in, in the Bazaari demonstration, the demonstrations of the Bazaar. Uh, and, but they've been going on in, in, in um, some of the peripheral areas as well. Uh, again, you know, they got tired of it after the first or second round of demonstrations, but it isn't because... Uh, it stopped, and, and when Rouhani can go and say, you, 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 in Europe, you, the United States is going to pay a high cost for this, and to talks about, and threaten, and now they're threatening to cut off the shipping right. in the Straits of Hormuz, to which 30% of the crude going to the West comes every day. 
and at Baba Mandan, and they could use their proxies, the Houthis, to do this in Yemen because it, it abuts it. And they they have talked often about the threat of having this chokehold over commerce going. And remember, this includes then from the Suez Canal, Persian Gulf areas to even to the Indian Ocean. Uh, that this is, uh, uh, I think, a causes ballet. But even even without that, it is the threat has been responded to by the United States military, saying that we will keep the channels open. So this is another area that could escalate. This is, you know, you could have an incident of some kind there that could um, easily flare up. And the the um, uh, one of the things that I think is really funny is that for three days this week, Nahum, there was an international uh, convention, a, a human rights festival, uh-huh. but about America, and criticizing in different categories, including cartoons, uh, and drawings uh, uh, criticizing human rights in the United States and citing specific cases. This is uh, not the first year. This is the third year that they've uh, uh, they've done it. Here's a country that's disintegrating. They're suffering extreme drought in half the country. Young people unemployment is is soaring. Uh, at least forty percent amongst uh, millennial women and and very high amongst the the men. And the people are saying, we don't want your adventurism. We need to be fed. We want you to spend the money here. They are going to have less and less money. Uh, uh, For them, it is fortunate that the price of oil has gone up so much. So even if they have reduced sales, they still have the income from it. But we we have to have a sustained effort. The the sanctions work. I think it's it's clear that they work. The, um, The more that they make these extreme threats are just a reflection of the fact that they that they are feeling the uh, the impact of it and you see even threats from some of the base leaders and others uh, uh, which I think is an expression certainly an organized uh, response we also see Iran playing more of a role in Syria and that their proxies are involved with the Syrian army near the Golan and they put on Syrian uniforms. They uh, engage in other activities that uh, both re- Iran re- re- um, regulars and the, these militias, the 80,000 militias. Iranian troops per se are few in Syria because they let these other guys die for them. But Hezbollah has joined some of these units of the 4th Division and the, the Republican Guard in Syria. Uh, so this is... Um, you know, we're seeing Iran becoming more aggressive in the area, in the region. That the money that they have, they are spending on this, and the Europeans are again following the one policy that they know well, which is appeasement. <laughs> and and Churchill once said, appeasement is feeding the crocodile in the hope that it'll eat you last. And this is why what the United States is doing is so important of standing up to it to see the other countries that are are willing to stand up to it. If Europe doesn't even respond to the terror infrastructure that is being exposed, the fact that a, a, an employee of the embassy of Iran in Vienna and that the base, it was based in, in uh, Belgium, and we know why Belgium. So um, I think that this, you can't explain it. And tens of thousands of people joined a protest in Paris, which was addressed, by the way, by Rudy Giuliani and uh, the former prime minister of Canada, Harper, Hmm. And um, um, 
it was very powerful. Even Richardson, you know, the former ambassador, governor, uh, participated, and it, it was a rally of the National Resistance Organization to to Iran. So there is growing dissent, growing public expressions, and then the Europeans come in always with a a life raft to to try to save these evil forces. You mentioned a moment ago about the uh, small presence that Iran has in Syria. Just as as I continue to try to understand how this works in terms of relationship with Assad, and Assad approves of that, meaning he has no problem with that presence of Iran in Syria, or he would prefer they not be there? Look, I believe ultimately he doesn't want them there. I don't think the Russians will want them there. There's a, a historic animosity, but they did back Assad and uh, together with the Russians. So at that point, Iran was very important. And what I meant was that the that Europe, that the Iranian forces per se, of course, you have Hezbollah, even though there are reports now that they've reduced the number, but there's still thousands of them there. And most of all, you got estimates range up to 80,000 members of militias that Iran controls inside Iran. And those are guys are putting on the uniforms of the of the Syrians in order to be able to stay because the agreement is that Syrian troops would be allowed on the an area approaching the Golan, but not the Iranians. So this gives them uh, an opportunity, a way for them to have a presence without being exposed. The, um, uh, so uh, Iran is, is, uh, is there to stay. They need this. This is inc- incredibly important for, uh, you know, the, the uh, highway corridor, or what we call the Shiite Crescent, which goes from Iran through Iraq through Syria to Lebanon. Right. And these areas are critical for the continuity of that. So they have a larger regional goal, and, of course, they have the specific interests of keeping bases and keeping uh, hand in, in it. The Russians, I think, you know, who have almost no troops there and have a few planes flying and doing bombing missions, uh, will ultimately want to see and have said that foreign troops should get out, but It'll be an ultimate decision. It doesn't mean that it'll be done immediately. We should be pressing much harder. And I hope that the president, in his meeting with um, Mr. Putin, will make clear that the, it is intolerable to have these encroachments on the Golan. The fact that the, the reports that the Syrians are even setting a basis, want to reestablish their presence, this is a violation of the separation agreement um, between Israel and, and Syria that the um, United States has to make clear to President Putin and also make clear that we're not going to pull out of Syria, certainly not at this point. I know the president has said he wants to and wants to get out of these areas, but that sends the wrong message at this time to the uh, to the opposition. If they think they just can wait us out, and that we will abandon some of our friends in, in the region, I don't believe that's the intent. I think that uh, of the president, remember we did do bombings there. We did do other things, and have been very supportive of the Kurdish troops. How likely in their fight against ISIS? How likely is it that these issues, Israel, the Golan, the encroachment, will will be on the Trump agenda when he meets with Putin? Well, past history shows that he has been very concerned. Um, he obviously has a lot of issues with uh, uh, with Putin, but Syria will clearly have to be a, a priority. Um, you know, there are also issues about East Europe, about American presence, NATO presence, uh, but um, and of course, I think the sanctions issues will, will, against Iran will loom very large. Russia is part of the 
group that wants to fight the sanctions and looking for ways around it, even though Iran's, uh, Russia's economy is in no position to substitute. It's very small. It's weak. Uh, he has been able to manipulate that into a power base that's so remarkable, I think, and I give him credit for it. Right. Uh, but he, he certainly has become the dominant force right now in terms of the way things will move ahead in, in Syria. So I think the United States has to make clear, A, that we're going to remain engaged. B, I think we should keep our, our troops there for now. It doesn't mean forever. And we should help bolster some of the the good guys, though they are increasingly diminished. We see the rebels being destroyed, so it leaves you the Kurds. And we're also going to have to see what Turkey, under a re-energized Erdogan, will do, given his election victory and his desire to establish himself around the world. And by the way, you know that I've talked for a long time about the thousands of mosques that he's building all over the world, Europe, Africa, elsewhere. His imams have been kicked out of four or five European countries just in the last few days because of the radical message that they have been preaching. And yet he is as part of his desire to reestablish the Ottoman Empire and to be the caliph, and it also accounts for the amount of money and involvement in Jerusalem, which is expanding all the time by Turkey, uh, also some of the others, but Turkey in particular. This is part of his uh, longer-term vision, which has now been further energized by the election outcome. And I want to reiterate one of the takeaways from this most recent segment, because it's an easy one to transmit to our to the young people in our families, and that is that as these leaders in Europe continue to meet with the president of Iran, at the same time as hinted by the uh, prime minister of Israel, uh, the Israelis are stopping large-scale terror attacks in Europe, and I think it's a really, really important and simple way to understand uh, part of the situation that's happening in this world of ours. Um, finally, Malcolm, I, I got to ask you what you thought of the joint declaration of the prime ministers of the state of Israel and the Republic of Poland. Uh, uh, I guess what we can now call the conclusion of this whole controversy over uh, Polish involvement in the Shoah? Hardly the conclusion. <laughs> it is only another phase now because the <laughs> the criticism of the agreement, which was made public, uh, obviously, people hadn't seen it before, and there was a debate over whether Yad Vashem experts had signed off on it or didn't. The prime minister's office said they did. They said they didn't. And they have come out very critical about some of the portrayals, uh, and even about the Polish resistance role in helping uh, Jews in World War II and um, other issues. So rather than resolve it, I think it's reignited uh, the controversy in, in Poland. As you know, yeah. they have a, a right-wing government, and... Um, I think this could further uh, put the relationship between Israel and Poland on the line and uh, about the relationship between Jews and Poland. So hopefully we can get an amendment to it and and see that the language is fixed up. Yeah, Section 4 of the six-section joint statement is the one I think is most disturbing in terms of uh, rejecting the actions aimed at blaming Poland or the Polish nation as a whole for the atrocities committed by the Nazis. That's how it starts. But if people read the agreement, I think you'll agree that that's the one that's the most sensitive one and the one that's getting the most reaction from Yad Vashem. Um, and the original point was that about calling the concentration camps in Poland and Nazi concentration camps in Poland and not Polish concentration camps, right. which was a valid issue and, and accepted by most people. Right. But uh, but to deny the role of Poles and to, to try to distort
distort history and this revisionism, that is not acceptable. And I think that that's really where we're at right now. He, he, they, each one is playing to their own constituencies on it. But I think the truth here is is really important uh, and that was not served by the agreement. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, we have Rabbi Yudanon from Israel. Thanks so much for your time. We will reconvene have a good Shabbos. one week from today, Bezrat Hashem, and have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update every Friday right here at JM in the AM. And as I said, Rabbi Yudin, it's always... Wonderful to hear his words every single Friday. We've been doing that for over three and a half decades. But when he is uh, speaking to us from Israel, it makes this segment, which is live, uh, even more extra special. This time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present Rabbi Benjamin Yudin, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Yudin. Good morning, Nachum, good Erev Shabbos, everybody, and uh, it's good afternoon in uh, Beit Shemesh, and uh, all I can say is it's exciting, most exciting, and wish you were all here, because you feel the Erev Shabbos here, and uh, I just want to tell you one thing, just to make us all feel a lot more proud as to what's happening in and from Eretz Yisrael. Yesterday, in Yerushalayim, they had an uh, announcement to make. It seems that there are many people that compete for a top reward creation, a from woman. Her name is, what's her first name? I'll give you, Yehudis Abrams, created... She herself did her postdoctoral work in the States at NASA. She came on Aliyah. She created an ultrasound system where women can use at home to detect any abnormalities in breast tissue and Baruch Hashem save many, many lives in the future by the most early detection of possible breast cancer. Again, it's coming out of Eretz Yisrael. This week's parasha is that of Parshas Pinchas. According to the Chinuch, there are six mitzvos, all positive mitzvos, in Parshas Pinchas. Note that basically all of the mitzvos are those that can give us idud, which is literally encouragement and uplifting, especially in these three weeks that we find ourselves already between Shavasa Batamas this past Sunday and the forthcoming unfortunate. Um, well, it will be someday. The Navi promised us a Yom Tov of Tishabov in two weeks. And the first mitzvah is that of nachala, of inheritance, which we'll come back to in a few moments. Then you have the korbanos musaf, the additional sacrifices. 
Not only have the Korban Tomid and the additional sacrifices of Shabbos, of Rosh Chodesh, of Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkos, the blowing of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. These are all positive mitzvos that we had, and especially those in the Beis Migdash and Amir Tzashem. We're going to have them again in the Beis Migdash. I'd like to focus for a few moments on Benos Tzlovchad. So first of all, you should know that, interestingly, the Medrash Yalkut Shimoni tells us that this is not exactly the place where it happened. In other words, we are now in this week's Parsha, in the 40th year, right before Klai Yisrael is, come on, about to enter Eretz Yisrael. From the flow of the text, you would look, because after all, the uh, Benos Lavchad precedes, on the one hand, Moshe's asking for uh, a successor, and as Rashi says on the spot, well, Moshe saw the Benos Lavchad, they got what they wanted, I'll get hopefully what I want, and he wanted to give for his children that they should succeed very possibly, realizing that Yoshua might have been a greater Tambachacham, but maybe Malchus he wanted for his children. Okay, the al Shimoni says that just as our rabbis say, knows that Slavchot happened the first year in the Midbar, that's when they come to Moshe at a time when B'nai Yisrael are saying, Nitno Rosh, let's go back to Mitzrayim. They're saying, no, give us a chilek in Eretz Yisrael. So basically, what is their question? Their question to Moshe is, our father died without sons, five daughters. Do women inherit where there are no sons? Do the daughters inherit? So the answer to that question is definitively yes. The Torah tells if there are no sons, the daughters inherit. But now, when Hashem responds to Moshe and he says to them that uh, you are to give them an inheritance, so the Torah says, this is in Perek, Chav Zayin, here we go. Pasuk 7. 27 Pasuk 7. Cain benos Tzlavchad of Rose, the daughters of Tzlavchad are right. Nason titain lahem achuzas nachla, give them an inheritance, come on, amongst those of their father's brothers. The question is why the Torah uses a double lashon, nason titain. So our scroll translates, you shall surely give, and they are certainly correct. As in other places in the Torah, where the Torah says, for example, in Parshas Re'ei, when the Torah speaks about the mitzvah of tzedakah, the Torah says, nason titain. Translated, you shall surely give. Besoach tiftach, 
you shall surely open your hand to the poor. However, I want to suggest in accordance with the Orachayim HaKadosh that when Hashem says, Nason Titeim, it's not only you shall surely give, but there is a much deeper lesson that is to be taught, and that is as follows. Tzlovchad was a Bechor. Okay, again, their father was a firstborn. What does that have to do with anything? Ah, so watch this. The Torah teaches in Parshas Kiseitzei, the laws of primogeniture, which means that if a man dies and he has a Bechor, the Bechor, the firstborn, gets double as to what the others get, the other sons. Okay, now, the question is that what happened? Their father died, Slavchad. He, being a Bechor, got double in what his father, Chefer, had. Now, the question is, did Chefer have any share in the land of Israel. Hello, Chefer having a share in the land of Israel? Chefer was in Egypt, right? Whether he came out of Egypt or not is secondary. Chefer was never in the land of Israel. So what the question now is, very interestingly, is as follows. The land of Israel, was that Muhzak or was it something that was first going to be forthcoming? Allow me to explain. When a man dies, whatever he has at the time of his passing, that is what is inherited by his children, and whatever he has at the time of passing, the firstborn gets double. Now, what if a man were to buy a lottery ticket a week before he dies, and the drawing takes place a week after he dies? The children get up from Shiva, and guess what? Their father's ticket was the winning ticket, and father's ticket wins a million dollars. Does the firstborn get double in that lottery? And the answer is no, because the, first, the father did not own, did not have the money at the time of his passing. Now the question is, what is the status of the land of Israel? Meaning, does the land of Israel first become owned by the Jews that enter the land of Israel. Yoshua is about to take the Jewish people across the Yardim. When they enter the land of Israel, ah, now the land of Israel is theirs. And then it is divided appropriately among the tribes. Or no, the land of Israel already belonged to the Avos. 
It was Mukhzak. It was already in the possession of Avraham, who passed it to Yitzchak, who passed it to Yaakov, who passed it down to the Shvatim, who passed it down to those who are about to go into the land of Israel. But the land already belonged to Hefer. And so Tzlafchad, being a Bechor, had a double share of his father's land in the land of Israel. And so therefore, the Torah is teaching us that rather than looking upon the land of Israel as something that they will attain in the future, it is considered muhzak. It is considered already in their hands. In other words, as I said, and this is based upon take out a Chumash Bereshis, twice in Lech Lecha, in chapter 13, Hashem says to Avraham that he should look up and see the entire land. This is verse 15 in chapter 13. I'm giving it to you already. So before the Jewish people even stepped foot into the land, the land already belonged to them. And in chapter 15, right after the Brisbane Absarim, the Torah tells us, in chapter 15, Pesach 18, Bayomahu on that day, Koras Hashem is Avram Brislemor. Hashem enacted a covenant with Avram, saying, Lizarachah to your children, Nosati Esaoret Hazos. And let me tell you something. It's a question whether you can dance in the three weeks or not. This Pasuk is worth dancing for. This Rashi, chapter 15, Pasuk 18, bring the Rashi to your table tonight. What does Rashi say? The Zarachon to your children, come on, I and have, have I given, says Art Scroll. What does that mean, have I given? Says Rashi, Ami Rasul Shalakodesh Baruchu. When Hashem says, I'm giving it to you, Ki'iluhu Asuya, it's like it was done already. It's money in the bank. Ah, Eretz Yisrael Muzekes. There's no more beautiful music for us during the three weeks than to be reminded that the land of Israel belongs to us that it's ours, and Amir Tzashem, we're all going to come home. And most important, the land of Israel is complete with not only its people, which help and give it Kedusha, the more persons on the land, but what makes Israel special is its Ruchnius, its spirituality. And the idea is very clear. The rabbis tell us that Yerushalayim Shalmata, the Jerusalem, which is down here, is Mechuvan. It is literally corresponding to Yerushalayim Shalmala, to the Jerusalem, which is upstairs. And the Beis Migdosh Shalmala is functioning. And let me tell you, my friends, every day in the Shemona Esrei, and four times on Shabbos, we say the introduction to the closing, the three closing brachos of Shemona Esrei, and the, that is the bracha of Ritzei, 
Hashem be favorable towards your people Israel and their prayer. Now watch this. Restore the service that literally to the Holy of Holies of your temple. Now what does that mean? And here in Shulchan Aruch, or Achayim 120, the Mishnah Brewer brings two interpretations, whether it refers to the Isha Yisrael, the men and the women of Israel, the persons of Israel, their prayer, please accept, or no, it refers to the Isha Yisrael, to the sacrifices that are brought daily, Lamala in the base Amigdash and please God, there's going to be the sacrifices in the base Amigdash We are to derive such idud, uplifting excitement from Parshas Pinchas. Eretz Yisrael is Muchzekes. It's ours. It's ours whether we are living here yet or whether we are only aspiring, which is where we should be, aspiring towards living here, and understand, and I'll close with this, that the Vilna Gaon, every day, took the Gemara in Brachos Tav Ches Amar Aleph so seriously, that the Gemara says in Ches Amar Aleph in Brachos, that the synagogues outside of Israel... Imyetz Hashem will be forthcoming to Eretz Yisrael at the time of the Moshiach, that the Vilna Gaon, who was not yet in Eretz Yisrael, what did he do? He walked at the end of davening every day, Dalet Amos, in his local synagogue in Vilna, for the purpose of fulfilling Dalet Amos in Eretz Yisrael. Now, especially we who live in a time that we can come and get inspired and be machazek, wow, Pashas Pinchas talks to each and every one of us and says how privileged we are that Eretz Yisrael, Muchzekes, he biodeinu. Shabbat Shalom to all.
רצון מלפני אבינו. אבינו שבשמיים, שתתמלא רחמים על החתן והכלה get to more, don't worry. Words we say uh, this coming Shabbos, because we bench Rosh Chodesh tomorrow, Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av will be on uh, Friday of next week. Again, Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av will be on a Friday. Um, and that's Ari Goldwag here at JM in the AM. Uh, 17 minutes before 9 o'clock, it is a, a JM in the AM broadcast for a Friday. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Don't forget amazing programming all through the day. Our very own Naomi Nachman has the um, table for two program coming up between 9 and 10. At 10 o'clock, our Erev Shabbos Music Mix is brought to you by our friends at Kedem. Erev Shabbos Music Mix goes all the way until candle lighting time. Saturday night, single with Avrami tomorrow night. Matis hosts JM Sunday. It is coming Sunday between 7 and 9. 
And then a Monday morning, we'll start at 6 a.m., of course, with JMM. Even before that, sometime after 5.30 with bonus JM right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. 16 minutes before the hour, plenty more on a Friday. Keep it right here at JM in the AM.
Comes from uh, Bitachon, Aishas Chayel, 613 before that, here at JM in the AM. It is time to say good Shabbos, journeys at JM in the AM. So throw away your hammer 
My brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you with your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Oh yes, you could say that again. It is one beloved NSN app that gives us all this amazing programming. Naomi Nachman is next, then our Kedem presentation of the Arab Shabbos music mix all the way until candle lighting time, three weeks format. Tomorrow night, Saturday night, Seagull with Avrami. Sunday, of course, it's uh, Matis with JM Sunday beginning at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. And Monday, it's me, 6 a.m. Eastern Time with JM in the a.m. And before that, some bonus JM as well. Make sure to be tuned in and enjoy. Have a fabulous Shabbos, wonderful weekend. Until next week, Nachum Seagull reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.